Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering two separate conversations from last Monday's episode four, What to Listen for Friday at the FDA webcast. Each conversation will include a portion of the original podcast, followed by some comments from me about what we heard on those subjects on Friday. In this conversation, the first one, the panelists, Stephen Harrison, Manal Abdelmalik, Louise Campbell, and me, discuss overall areas of guidance we hope will emerge from Friday's discussion. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. I think just just understanding the formal white paper written by the FDA, those goalposts, to my knowledge, have not changed. The subpart H surrogate endpoint remains as stated. Resolution of NASH without worsening of fibrosis, improvement of fibrosis by at least one stage without worsening of NASH, or hitting both combined endpoints. And I just want clarity from them that that, that is indeed still the case. I do find it interesting However, in maybe uh, the first couple paragraphs of the white paper, they make it clear that NASH with liver fibrosis is a serious life-threatening condition and as such deserves drugs to treat it. They also go on to say the magnitude of the benefit a patient receives with lifelong treatment must be balanced with the safety profile of the drug. What that brings to my mind is I want to hear from the agency kind of where that priority is, right? So is it to me, based on the CRL that we know uh, was sent to intercept, the wording that, that was translated without having ever seen the CRL, what was conveyed was that there was an inadequate risk-benefit ratio, or there was a concern about a risk-benefit ratio. And when you read this white paper, it's pretty clear that, that safety is on the minds of the FDA in a big way. You know, again, repeating the magnitude of the benefit a patient receives with lifelong treatment of NASH must be balanced with the safety profile of the drug. NASH patients are also vulnerable to other diseases, and investigational drugs should not worsen comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease, hyperlipidemia, metabolic disease, and diabetes, or cause liver injury. And so I, I hope that they just provide a little clarity around that. The other thing I would like to learn a little bit more about that I don't quite fully get a clear picture of from the white paper is their stance on non-invasive biomarkers and what it will take working with the biomarker qualification program within the FDA to get to where we're acceptable or they are acceptable of a non-invasive test acting as a surrogate of a surrogate for an outcome measure. My guess is somehow that's going to work through machine learning and artificial intelligence where we're looking at fully quantitative assessment of the NAS lesions, 
NASH resolution per se, and then also fibrosis improvement. But it's unclear to me exactly how that would work out. And I'm hopeful that there is some clarity provided on Friday as well. Also would be nice to get a little stance on this idea of placebo response and how pathology is interpreted in the era of doing liver biopsies. And we, we've talked on the podcast quite a bit about inter and intra-observer variability, the issues with liver biopsy interpretation, and they go into that a bit in their paper. And they do provide some rough outline there about recommending sponsors review in detail their plan for liver biopsy procurement, processing, and interpretation. And I get this quite a bit from sponsors. They want to know what that means. And and there there is a little little bit of guidance in here, but, but I'm hoping it's fleshed out a bit more in the uh, the formal review that, that's going to be public on Friday. In other words, do we need to have two pathologists? And what they do mention is that because there's a high degree of discordance in liver histology interpretation, that maybe that could be improved by pathologist training. For example, having an adjudication committee of central pathologists read baseline and treatment slides together and decide how each of the components of the NAS system would be interpreted with the notion that such training efforts should help address many of the limitations of histopathology reading. So really just some more clarity around around what that means. And I think with that, I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Stephen, first, uh, I just want to note that a lot of what you just mentioned aligns with some of the comments you made on the year-end summary episode about what the agency had indicated up to that point. And there, you talked about the kind of statements that you now want to get a lot more detail on, and I think that's a, that's a good flow, and it all made a lot of sense then, and it's a lot of sense now. Let me turn next to Manal and ask the same question. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Stephen's points. I think we do need some guidance as to how do we balance in the context of executing effectively clinical research with a safety efficacy balance, there is a a little bit of a difference in clinical practice versus clinical research. Side effects related to drug therapies can sometimes be mitigated, for example, with dose reduction or concomitant therapies. And it would be wonderful to receive guidance as we develop these clinical trial protocols, how we can ensure the highest level of safety in the context of the trial such that When we get to achieving efficacy endpoints, this unknown balance of long-term safety versus efficacy isn't so much in question. Do we need to implement risk mitigation strategies in the context of clinical trial design? Should we leave risk mitigation up to a manner in which a provider would otherwise manage a lipid increase or a glucose signal or any event that would come up in the context of a clinical study in in the way that they would otherwise be at liberties to manage it had they otherwise been in clinical practice. So I I think a guidance there would be, you know, highly welcomed. I would also like to see where the industry is is going with their thoughts about how we're going to utilize the totality of data. We've certainly come to a further understanding of the imperfections of liver biopsy on, on multiple fronts that are even beyond pathology interpretation alone, sampling variances, sample qualities, and needle size, standardizing that in phase three clinical trials is, is fairly onerous, let alone whether we use one pathologist to can, you know, committee review, blinded pre and posts, re- 
re-staggering the, the deck and rereading them at the end of the trial, I think that can have really a lot of bearing on an outcome or even a change in the outcome. And are we at a point now, given the, the ability to track change with surrogate markers, whether they be imaging-based or biopsy-based, for the emphasis on biopsy to be looked at in part, but not in its totality as a primary endpoint, maybe as a, a conglomerate endpoint with other surrogates, and depending on the strength of the surrogates, is it all going to hinge eventually on that fibrosis stage on biopsy or maybe even a replacement of these surrogates? I think we have to move in a different direction to redefine quote, a different gold standard because it, it is disincentivizing our ability and I think hindering the pace for drug development and getting promising drugs to a, a large population at risk. Thanks, Manal. Just wondering, was there anything you read in the document that led you to think they might go so far as to talk about biopsy as part of a composite endpoint or is that on the wish list? That's a wish list, I think. Ultimately, we will be treating towards harder outcomes, you know, feel, function, and survive. And a biopsy change um, from an F3 to an F4 doesn't necessarily change our clinical practice. And understanding the misclassification rate even between those two stages on on biopsy, uh, it, it makes me wonder, are we putting too much emphasis on it, such an imperfect endpoint in deciding how we propel promising therapies forward if other surrogates are supportive of a positive change from baseline. It's interesting. I'd, I'd highlighted some of the similar parts that Stephen was talking about, and I totally agree with Manal. And I think I looked more at the beginning of some of the documents where they're actively encouraging the movement towards the non-invasive testing and the biomarkers and the proof of concept studies now and the phase two. And I think that certainly opens clinical trials up to the non-normal clinical trials units. I think patients do prefer non-invasive techniques. And I think if we can do a lot of the work with non-invasive techniques and biomarkers, I think that allows us to strengthen potentially the field of non-invasive biomarkers that we're, we're looking at. We obviously have ELFNIS for NAFLD scores. We have all of those that are working on MRI, dynamic fat fraction. We've got Fibroscan. We now have Smart Exam. Things are moving in that direction. My only concern is if we do use these a lot more in proof of concept studies and the early phases. The documents are fairly clear that when we move to the phase three studies, it's histopathology um, and it's the changes in histopathology that we need to see, as Stephen so rightly said about the end points. But how do we then move from a more non-invasive early assessments into phase three with the accuracy that we're going to need? So there was a lot of encouragement and I'd certainly like to see some clarity in exactly how we're going to transcend that barrier across from the phase two to the phase three studies where we change from non-invasive to histopathology as the primary um, method of review. But I do think it's encouraging. I think we'll see a lot more patients able to be recruited. We may well get closer to finding out the natural history of fatty liver disease because I think we don't know who's going to be most affected and we can't pick those people really 
realistically, but we're not doing enough early screening to find the people that we can monitor on a long-term basis. So hopefully by further developments of non-invasive testing and biomarkers, we can strengthen how we can diagnose liver disease because currently we know they're not the best. So those are the bits that I was really interested in was that movement. Um, and I suppose it takes to Donna's and the GLI that maybe we are moving a little bit more beyond the biopsy in the early start of the clinical trials. Thanks, Louise. Uh, let me just share mine and then throw it open for questions and comments between us on this topic before we'll going to the next question. Uh, there was a section in the middle of page five, I also highlighted, um, that talked about sample sizes. Nash's common disease trials pro that provide a sufficiently large pre-approval safety database will facilitate assessment of risk and benefit. What they then asked for was the size of a pre-approval safety database that would ensure that low-frequency adverse events could be detected and appropriately described for assessment of risk benefit and went on to tell sponsors they should be aware that the size of a placebo trial trial adequately powered for efficacy might not be sufficient to support the drug safety, allow for the overall benefit risk assessment that's necessary for drug approval. To the degree that that simply says larger samples, I guess that's one thing, but it could say larger samples, it could say longer studies, it could say you're going to need to find a way to aggregate data from multiple sources to make this make sense, it could say two trials. What that paragraph winds up meaning, I think, will have a tremendous practical impact on the cost of getting to market and the time it takes to get to market. Therefore, exactly how high the hurdle for clinical success in, in an economic sense is going to wind up being. So that would be mine. And anybody have questions, comments for any of the others of us on any of this? If a drug is highly efficacious and has a very clean safety profile, I think the number of data points that the FDA or any safety review committee needs to look at is, is finite. However, where you have drugs that have a potential safety risk as highlighted in phase two or maybe as part of your NDA filing and the efficacy is relatively marginal, then I, I do think that you may be held to a higher number of patients to provide that bit of further sense that, that you've done your due diligence. And, and, and I think that's been part of the challenge so far. You know, beta-colic acid, we, we use it for primary biliary cholangitis. It's been around now in the market for a, a little while. You know, it's it's been extensively studied in large numbers of patients with NASH, and, and there are some issues related to the drug, and the overall uh, efficacy is relatively marginal. 11% placebo-adjusted response rate on fibrosis, while highly significant, you know, the, the, the clinical significance of that is is good if you happen to be in the group that's having a fibrosis benefit. But but in the rest where you're not having a benefit, are you then being, are you faced with some side effects or adverse events that maybe are unwieldy? Maybe it's high, you know, elevated LDL cholesterol, pruritus, you know, gallstones. I, I don't know. But I think that's the concern is they just want to have a very clear picture of, you know, what's happening to the patient from a safety perspective relative to the efficacy. And, and 
I think to your point, it would be nice to hear them spell that out with a bit of granularity and clarity rather than just saying the risk-benefit ratio has to be at a certain level for us to have a comfort with it. Tell us what that is. What do we need to show? I agree with your question wholeheartedly. The source of my concern is that there's a different way to interpret that paragraph in the context of diseases that affect millions of people, which is that you start looking for one in a thousand or one in 10,000 effects. And when they use the phrase, which I'll pull up again, low frequency adverse event, I don't know what that, and that's a phrase I would love to have significant clarity on, because if they mean 1% of the population, then I think your description holds. If they mean one in 10,000, as they do in some other drug classes, that creates a whole different set of pressure on drug trials. So I just think we need to be clear on what it is. I don't think it's going to be right here, but I think clarity would be really helpful. I suppose I just had a slight question that followed on um, from yours, because after the section that you were discussing, they go on to sort of state that clinical trials might want to look at an endpoint, a histological, histopathologic endpoint at two years because of the slowness and the subtle changes with the disease. So that's moving it from the 12 to 18 months, which is current. So when Stephen was saying earlier about we don't know whether they want longer studies or bigger studies, it seems like they're sort of lengthening the time points for some of these biopsies, but also post-market setting, reconsenting patients to a drug trial when the drug's already been approved. Is that what I was reading in that document? Louise, that's the way it's currently done. Right now, we have subpart H approval, right? So you take uh, one or two doses of drug plus a placebo, you randomize the patients, they get treated for one year to 18 months, repeat a liver biopsy, see if you meet the subpart H histopathological endpoint. If you do, you submit your NDA and you may or may not get approved. But at the same time, if you read further down on that or into the next paragraph, it talks about you must begin your phase four portion or the the long-term outcome portion of your phase three has to begin prior to the presentation of the subpart H database, filing of your NDA. So before you submit your subpart H results, you have to be underway with the long-term outcome portion, which is a blinded portion. So Intercept still doing their phase four portion right now. That's the long-term outcome piece. So those patients, you know, we still have patients that are on, on IP and some are on placebo. And the idea there is you go until an adjudication committee is able to evaluate a certain number of events and show that significantly more have occurred in the placebo arm. And, you know, for most studies designed so far, it's somewhere between, you know, roughly around 400 to 450 adjudicated events. And they outline in that white paper what those adjudicated events are. uh, And they will probably, I suspect, go through those again on, on the call Friday, which are essentially progression to cirrhosis, which quite frankly, if you're in a non-cirrhotic trial, an F2, F3 study, my own opinion is progression to cirrhosis will be the number one adjudicated event. Reduction in hepatic decompensation, meaning lesser numbers of people on drug having varicell bleeding, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, fewer people progressing from a meld less than 12 to a meld greater than or equal to 15, fewer people dying from disease of whatever etiology, and fewer people having liver transplantation. Now, you did raise a very interesting question about the uh, document, and that 
was their wording that suggested maybe trials should should be two years in duration. Given the slow, gradual progression or improvement in inflammatory changes in fibrosis observed on liver histopathology, sponsors might want to consider efficacy evaluations of the surrogate histopathologic endpoint at two or more years. Now, that's fine for drugs that have that are slow to work, maybe have a marginal benefit. But I'm here to tell you that this treatment paradigm is rapidly evolving in the field of NASH. The, the pharmaceutical industry has gotten really good at targeting the pathological principles, the pathophysiological principles of NASH. And these early paired liver biopsy studies are showing some real positive impacts on NASH in fibrosis at relatively early time points, certainly much earlier than two years. So I think while, you know, look, way back when we started this in the Pivens trial with vitamin E and pioglitazone, it was a two-year study. And then we did, you know, 18 months for intercept. And I just think that our drugs are getting more and more efficacious. They're targeting the real drivers of NASH and fibrosis. And quite frankly, some of our drugs are defatting the liver at a very rapid pace. And I think we will begin to see that that, that equates to improvement on histopathology at a much earlier time point than two years. So I'm hopeful that there is some clarity provided there, or at least if not clarity, an, a willingness to say, well, look at and we will listen to the sponsors outline their phase three protocol and plan. And if the data warrant, then potentially you wouldn't need that long of a phase three trial. I think one year for some of the drugs that are in the pipeline is significantly adequate to show a dramatic response on liver biopsy. I just think they need to clarify that statement a little bit more. In this section, the group looked for information on endpoints on several fronts. I'll list six in particular. First, confirmation that the subpart H surrogate endpoint remains as stated in the recent white paper and historically before that. Second, a clearer understanding of how the agency will balance efficacy and safety in determining whether the risk-benefit of a drug merits approval. Third, how the agency seeks to have biopsy slides evaluated by one, two, or three pathologists, and if three, what role or roles each should play. Fourth, would the agency help uh, us understand the role of risk mitigation strategies during clinical trials and how they would affect drug evaluation? Fifth, the practical question of how to transition from earlier stage trials with non-invasive testing to the clear requirement for histopathology in phase three. Sixth, finally, the likely sample size is to demonstrate adequate safety in a medicine with at least 5 million targeted patients like NASH, where trials need to demonstrate 1 in 100 safety, 1 in 1,000, 1 in 10,000, or a different number. In the actual event, the agency provided very little specific guidance. It stated fairly clearly that a drug with a superior efficacy profile would be held to a lesser safety standard than one with marginal efficacy, Obviously, all drugs would have to be acceptably safe. However, on many of these questions, the most important step the agency took was to indicate a desire to see more data from academia and manufacturers, with a tacit and sometimes perhaps not so tacit acknowledgement that histopathology with one reader is, as Manal Abdelmalik said during the episode, 
a flawed gold standard. In that context, a variety of concepts, multiple pathologist reads, artificial intelligence, other data management methods, arose as possible next steps, again, with the position, bring us the data. Net-net, panelists on Friday rated our satisfaction level with the webcast somewhere between 5 and 7 on a 10-point scale, with helpful general insights, but little specific guidance in key areas. We hope you have enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or anything else in the episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing one other conversation from this episode. Later this week, we will release specific conversations from our post-webcast episode as well. I hope you'll join us then, as well as now. Stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com, and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast. Thank you.